This is the Drummers Only podcast, brought to you by the UK's leading drum store. Hello everybody, uh, Drummers Only Radio, episode number 62. And we are here with the wonderful Alex Reeves. Good evening, Alex. How are you? How are you all? Uh, great. Thank you for asking. Um, if you're new to Alex, he has quite the CV, um, ranging from Elbow, Dizzy Rascal, Guy Garvey, Razorlight, Shania Twain, Marina, Bat for Lashes, Pete Tong, Duke Dumont, the BBC Symphony Orchestra, Anna Calvi, Jaguar Cars, um, <laughs> some film scores, and iDrum Magazine. Quite the CV, man. Quite the CV. Um, Alex also plays soda drums, Aquarian heads, and basically anything, I guess, that makes whatever he's doing sound better. So um, thank you so much, man, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so I saw you... I first was introduced to your playing, I think, twice in the one week. I saw Elbow playing on Graham Norton. And I also saw... It was round about the time not long after we had properly started stocking sonar drums again. And I saw the Drums in a Room project. Yeah, yeah. Which, if you haven't seen out there, dear internet, um, please go watch. But I, I was actually going to ask Alex to talk about it because it's quite a remarkable um, little document on on both the, the vintage series drums and, and recording drums in a room. So, um, yeah, man, just if you don't mind, talk us through that because it was really, really hip. Yeah, well, I was working with uh, a producer, Tommaso Caliva. He was he was um, using my studio for a little bit, actually. He's the uh, chief engineer with Muse. He does the records. He kind of um, co-produces their stuff. He set up all their home studios. He's he's an amazing musician and uh, engineer. Incredible ears to make anything sound good. And I started working on him uh, with him on this uh, project for Red Bull, which was basically what do they call it? The 30 drums or 30 drum sounds around the world. So anyway, it was, it was, a, it was like a hip hop thing. So, you know, the Red Bull, the Red Bull vibe, mm. they were like uh, some kind of dance competition thing. Um, they were doing like uh, trick stuff, like, cause they would sponsor all sorts of stuff, like skateboarding stuff. And, um, you know, like really hip, like, like teenage sport vibes. Mm. And, uh, what we needed to do was play, was play, um, music that sounded like it had been sampled from all the decades um so we went into a studio, the music had been written so we we're just playing the drum the drum parts to it um uh, but we, we went into one studio and we had to make things sound like they were recorded over about four or five decades okay and it was really tough um because we were like you see tomaso is an amazing engineer he did all the things he needed to do to make it sound authentic right mics right desk right all the other stuff um the way you mixed it and all that kind of thing um but we were totally limited by the fact that we were in one single room you know you had to make the room sound artificial we had to put like types of um uh convolution reverbs over the whole mix of the kit um and so we had this he had this great idea that we would uh collect that the room was so dominant in this in this whole thing <laughs> What would it be like if we played the same beat but in completely different rooms? So we picked three or four songs and then went to um, we went to Rack Studios, went to Air, mm -hmm. at um, uh, Snap Studios, which 
this uh, funky junk space around the corner from here at Finsbury Park. Um, and then we used a couple of like we used a living room. Uh, we used uh, a smaller studio that was being used for jam tracks. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, one of those. And then we filmed it all and uh, recorded it all. Four, was it three or four? It's a few years ago now. Sorry, I can't quite. <laughs> four different songs, same kit, same drummer, and we had mic. The mics were exactly the same. We didn't use their desks. We didn't use the studio desks. We just used the room um, and recorded every single thing. And the, the the, like the difference between the tracks, the whole sound of the track, just from the drum sound in each with each thing, just recorded in different places, was unbelievable. It just completely changed everything about the character of the song, um, with everything being exactly the same apart from the room. Yeah, whenever anybody talks to me about going to record and whatever studio they're going into, I kind of try and point them in the direction of that project because it really does highlight that this this sort of unspoken instrument almost the room yeah it's totally true uh, it's quite a few people really um, really recognize this you know like all, all the elbow records that i've that i've done have, uh, in some of it and some of them anyway have been recorded at um real world studios peter gabriel's place in uh, west country um and that just has a vibe it just has a certain sound has a certain feeling about it um and then whenever we've gone somewhere else to do stuff like we do stuff at blueprint in manchester mm. we completely different vibe just a different you know no better no worse just different and wonderful mm. um i know that Tom Waits has a thing where maybe he used to uh, where he'd go to record an album he'd go and audition a room so he'd have a mobile recording setup and he'd go and find whatever he finds somewhere probably some grotty old factory <laughs> bricks everywhere that he could hit and like bits of metal and all that kind of stuff and um you know set up his kind of mobile studio and then record the whole album in that capture in the room as the as like you said the kind of other character in the uh in the setup it's amazing there's a, a good customer of ours and a guy called ross mcfarlane who's been on the scene for ages he's played for texas and the proclaimers and all that and he told this really great story of, of recording with john fratelli from the fratellis i think they went to la and he was like he was so excited because he was going to go to this big beautiful room and all this thing and the next day he's like he's in a shoebox and some like back alley studio thing and he's like this is it and he's like naturally it sounded absolutely incredible like he heard it back and he was like ah okay you know absolutely get it you know but he was expecting that you know the la the la scene thing and it's just in this guy's dingy basement somewhere but it it made magic you know there's there's a load of studios like that in london there's um What's that one that Jack White does all of his stuff at? The one that's all analog. Um, mm. I can't remember the Tile House. Tile and right. Uh, anyway, it's that you know, it's got a certain vibe about it. It's um, out in the middle of an industrial estate. It's uh, it's got like you know tile walls. Mm-hmm. It's got no, no gear beyond nineteen sixty. No <laughs> track. If you want a click track, you got to play the click track. Really? <laughs> like original. Yeah. One of the on one of the tape reels uh, and play along with that um, vibe, just a different vibe, a different process as well. Yeah, sounds it. So afterwards, did that inform how you select gear and how you select mics and all that thing going forward with the way you record? Do you mean this drums in the room project? Yeah, yeah. Did that change how you think about all that stuff now? No, it changed how I. I don't think it changed much. I think we were out to prove a point. Mm recording in all those studios anyway um and you know it, it always is 
one of the most interesting things with drums specifically there's a you know other instruments will use the room a little bit but drums there's nothing like drums to move air mm. you know you put a guitar amp in a room and it moves air you put a drum kit in a room and it really does make a lot of noise and that every single instrument that you're that you play you the, the kind of amalgam of what you do sounds different in that room raw top sound a certain way bass drum sounds a snare drum sounds a get the cymbals in a certain way and you, you find like a gig especially when where you've got your ears out you've not got in ears in you're really playing to the room or the vibe you change how you play according to the sound uh, of the room and according to the music and everything you know mm -hmm. it's such a complex it's such a complex thing i mean so, I, I th yeah that thing of playing the room's forgotten these days i think i mean it, it, yeah i totally understand why you know the technology is incredible like mm. you should, little yamaha is it that you got on a drum kit and it just like makes a drum kit for you it's like that i mean there you go you know and, uh, virtual reality uh, uh, ai on on drums like that that the uh, moises um mm -hmm. app that where you can you know you can like put a track in and it'll separate all of the component parts and then export it for you so you've got solo drums you've got soloed vocal it's incredible like yeah it's pretty scary yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing. But yes, I, I totally get why people don't play the room as much as they do as much as they did. But then you go to the little clubs and stuff, and people still are. Yeah, it's funny. I, I think I, I see it from because I work in here. I see it from things like they they don't tune the room, so they'll take the drum kit into a, um, a, a club or a, a, a cavern, and it'll still be the same drum kit. It's not tweaked. It's not they've not done anything to it, and yet they can't understand why it sounds really bonkersly different. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, why is this tiny room making my floor tom sound horrible? It's like, well, because the sound's got, it's all the reflections coming back. It does, it's got nowhere to go. There's some great sounding rooms and there's some terrible sounding rooms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it, I, I just, I think, as a, I think as a project, you really did achieve your point, you know. Hey, oh, I'm pleased to hear it. Yeah, do check that out, listeners. Uh, yeah. So it was a really interesting process. It took a few days to get to get it. Um, I think in the video, what we've done to exaggerate the the kind of point of it is Neumann heads <laughs> yeah. and like ten feet in front of the drum kit, and use that as to kind of you know isolate the drums and to show exactly how much the room is affecting it. But then there's a there's a whole mix of stuff when we when we released. Uh, in fact, you just check the sound on sound out on the on the sound on sound website, which is who we did it for the magazine. Um, and that's I think they still have all the multi tracks and all the stems from. Oh wow! Also, the, the the sound on sound video is longer than the one that's on the Sonar site. It's uh, about it's it, about twice as long. The Sonar one's only about four minutes, but the sound on sound one's about eight and a half or so. Yeah. So you can really, yeah, you really get into the nitty gritty of it, um, which is you know just an amazing idea. Um, with that. In mind, I, I was watching some, some stuff earlier about the Young Punk stuff you did with the Stuart Copeland thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, man, that's nuts, that was. It was really bonkers, man. How how did that even come around? <laughs> Someone else's wild imagination. <laughs> so for those that don't know, um, uh, Alex did a project with this, the guy Hal Helston from Young Punks recreating Stuart Copeland's drum sound from the first two police records in so far as they could, like, you know, almost in it, like the same sticks and all sorts. Where everything was the same as much as we could. Uh, yeah. We did a lot of research on this. We were looking up articles from his old drum tech. I can't remember his name, but, um, and he was, he was talking about, I, I, we were flying emails around on how to prepare for this. And um, I was preparing the play and trying to play like 
and then I, and, you know, I, I know he's playing, I can hear he's playing, but there's another thing with taking a personality and trying to reproduce the personality. He's such a presence in those records, and as a person, everything about him is a presence, such a wonderful, like, you know, inspiring kind of sound. Mm. Um, and so I was working on that, and then I kept getting emails like, well, how are we going <laughs> to snare sound? I was like, yeah, yeah, how are we going to get this snare sound? So we looked up the snare he was using, but that's not enough. You could tune a snare a thousand different ways, and you can hit it in fifty different ways. You know, it's, so yeah. we were we and we were doing all this research, and then Hal Hal Ritson, who was kind of you know putting it all together, uh, found this article, and the drum tech said, "What you do is you tune everything as high as you can possibly tune it, and then rim shot it as hard as you possibly can." <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so we we found the symbols. We bought. I've got his. Um, Knocking around somewhere. I've got those pasty, um, those 12 inch, like mm. hats that he was using, super thick, like really, really high up. Just, again, snare drum, super high. We bought, uh, we took a lot of octobans. Yeah. <laughs> I will ever have <laughs> It's like, as well, like, <clears throat> people don't realize that he had a different hoop on the top of the drum as he did to the bottom and all that from back yeah. then. There was like a top and then, uh, is that right? I can't yeah, die, die cast on top and a triple flash on the bottom. Yeah, so it, it makes the drum move in a different way, doesn't it? Yeah, you just get the impression he bought a, a, a janky Black Beauty from a store somewhere and threw it up. Yeah. You know? Also, um, then, the, how got a hold of the multi-tracks for some of their police records? That stands so close to me, mate. Oh, it was something. No, um, I can think of the beat, but I can't think of the song. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, he was like, there are two different, completely two different drum takes, two different drum kits. You just didn't hear it on the record at all. It was like, occasionally you hear a cymbal like popping out from somewhere and you think he's just, you know, yeah. played those and all that. And like, you know, these little punctuation things that he does live. But um, no, it was two different <clears throat> kind of meshed together. And he said they weren't even in time with each other, really. They were like, but when when the record is was mixed and, and put out, it <laughs> so vibey and perfect that was, yeah so we were doing like two drum takes he was like don't play it so in time <laughs> i think that's the thing as well that folk forget about the context of those records because they had enough tape to do like maybe two passes yeah yeah you know and he was like if sting had his way none of that shit would have been on any of those records he just didn't have time to fight with me you know, so like all those splash symbols in the middle of the verse, that would have never flown if he if we didn't have his little tape. I think I remember reading an interview with uh, um, an old Rhythm magazine interview with uh, with Vinnie Colliuta. Mm. And the guy who was doing the interview, Martin Poynton, who was like the, the deputy editor at the time or something like that, had gone to Sting's house, his gaff, and he was like, you know, witnessing this rehearsal that was going on between the in the Sting band. Obviously, it's like you know, world superstars at that time, like late 90s, uh, mid 90s, or whatever it was. <laughs> around to Vinnie Colliuta. Vinnie Colliuta, <laughs> one, like one of the greatest, um, and goes, can you stop doing that fucking foldy roll, fucking Baroque shit? <laughs> foldy roll Baroque. <laughs> Vinnie Colliuta to stop overplaying with the splash symbols. I mean, how to reduce them to like... <laughs> Full day roll baroque shit. That's getting kept. Belongs on a t-shirt, I think. There you go. Um, only stop. Yeah. That. So, like, did you have to play triad grip and all that nonsense? 
I mean, it was like, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it was to just create the vibe as much because mm. it wasn't going to be a Stuart Copeland thing. It was mm. just like, he really loved Stuart Copeland. He really mm. loved, especially the older um, police records. And he just wanted to make something that, that like had, you know, lent, lent the vibe to that. It happens a lot, you know, like things bounce off a certain idea, a sample that you found that happens in hip hop all the time. Um, someone finds a, um, like a drum loop and they bounce off it and then they have to get permission to use the drum loop, which they obviously they have to pay a load of money for or, or for copyright, whatever. Um, and then they have to relinquish some of their, um, their, their kind of songwriting royalties to that, to that for the use of that drum loop. Well, it was what we were doing was essentially making those kind of sounds and feels in the spirit of, and then he was writing music over the top of it the young punks um, very cool yeah so it's, i think it's an interesting approach um and it and it skirts around the idea of of um uh of, of copyright and, and with the thought of content without actually kind of you know causing any problems yeah. because you all you're doing is capturing a vibe yeah yeah um so in in my research of of the work you've done I, I, can you go through the artists you've played with in it it became very apparent that every single artist that you have has a really unique voice. They all have their own voice, and there's nothing, nothing samey in your catalog. You know, um, how do you, as a, a sort of studio guy, accommodate that voice? Do you mean their voice? Or yeah, what? yeah, like their 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 compositional voice, not their actual singing voice, but like, you know, Guy Garvey's different from Elbow, who's different from Anna Calvi, who's different from. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, how I don't know. I th I think it's you come to an agreement. Mm. It's like groove. I think there was a there was a Steve Gadd quote a little like you all come to an agreement, mm -hmm. and and once everyone agrees, then you've got what that groove is. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I mean, I, I'll always come up with something just weird or off the wall or a bit unusual. Sounds I love sounds. I love. Mm -hmm messing around with them um and often you'll be like oh i've been inspired by this recently and you'll play a thing or do a thing and they'll be like oh i'd like that can i have that um and that will be incorporated in somehow and then it will be twisted and moved and made into something different and you know the artistic process is is long and interesting um but sometimes you know in, in the studio specifically sometimes you, you you're asked to do a specific thing you've got to just be able to do that as well um, yeah because it's it is different for every single uh every single person mm. you, you you know having a conversation you don't just shout over the top of it you don't <laughs> you don't you know you, when if you're having a good con a conversation that you enjoy that you like you know you look at someone in the eye and you listen to what they're saying and you're reacting to what they're saying and then you say a thing that's relevant and then they say a thing that's relevant and it's the same with it's kind of the same with music or, or, or the, the creative process of music, um, it, it, it's it's a conversation. And like I said, you kind of end up coming to an agreement of some kind. Although if it's an artist, then, you know, they yeah. can. Yeah, I mean, because one of the, the questions I have is, is, it's not necessarily loaded, but on the topic of it, as an artist and you're there to do a job, how do you handle it if you think the 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 situation of the request they want isn't suitable, like, musically. That's not for you to say. Right. Do you just bin it and just get on with it? And 
Well, do you know what often it is that you just you just haven't got to the bottom of it. So, so if someone says something that's so off the wall or so weird um, that you think, well, that's never going to work, often well, that's where the magic happens. And, right. and if you're working with those, with those people, who, and especially if people have already done it and you kind of trust them already, mm. that, that working with Natasha from Back for Lashes, ah, and, you know, I'd listen to her stuff and I was like, I knew that she knew what she was talking about. Um, and then I worked on a record with her and it was just, it was just this like, staying in a house in a Catskills um, National Park in upstate New York. And she was just like, just try some stuff. You know, it was a lot of that. <laughs> oh, I like that. Oh, can you try this? And, you know, but but being quite vague in her descriptions, but I kind of knew what, you know, that she had a direction and she wanted to find a place where this record was right for her vision and her artistic voice. What she wanted was in her head, but possibly mm. not describable. And, 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 I've got to say, in a studio, people are often, an artist is often after a feeling, and they're chasing a feeling, and they've got and they're relying on you to kind of fulfill that. I want to feel like this when I listen to this song. <laughs> That's it, and you've got to get. And as a session player, as a as a musician, you've kind of got to get to the bottom of that and find out what it is. It's up. I think I do think it's up, the prerogative is on the musician to try and understand it and not to doubt them, and 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 eventually you'll get to the point, and you might think it's shit. And then you hear the record, and it's like, "This is amazing." Why doubt this? Yeah. I've had that with with working with Guy. I thought, "I don't, I don't get it." And then you get to the end of it, and you're like, <laughs> "Genuflected the master." Yeah. <laughs> A lot of that. What's the creative process for Elbow Lake? Um, it's pretty special. Uh, it's long, and um, uh, they, you know. Get, getting the band together is tricky, but once we're t- once everyone's together and I'm in there, um, uh, it's it's a lot of fun. Because um, mm. they, I mean, they were when I when I kind of joined them in 2016. They'd done most of a, they'd done most of the record. That was the Little Fictions record. They'd written much all of it, and they got like Craig um, Potter who produces it. Uh, I'd got all the got all the stuff together. He'd got all the drum loops. He'd found things. He'd programmed loads of stuff. And then when they got me in, it was like towards kind of last, you know, last quarter of the album uh, to recreate what they did or to add some ideas or like you know whatever. Um, so, but then the next record we uh, uh, for Giants of All Sizes, we went to a um, we went on a night trip to Hamburg to this lovely studio called Clouds Clouds Hill. Um, and, um, we, we were there for about 10 days and we just set up all the stuff and just started playing. A lot of it was from jam sessions and they, they were like, well, we haven't done this for a while. This is really fun. Let's get some, let's get some music out of this. Mm-hmm. A lot of it also, everyone's got their studio. So people will send ideas like right now we've, I've been sending like, drum ideas to them. It's occasional ideas come back, uh, for the next record, you know, um, less, you know, it'll, it'll it doesn't have to be released for ages. Uh, so we've got a little bit of time to kind of settle into it and, and um, uh, make something that's, you know, just so. But as a creative process, it's, it's, uh, I've seen it and it's different every single time. That's pretty rad because <clears throat> what, I mean, I've liked them for a long time and, and what I like about them is that it feels like every record they make is something different. Yeah. Are they one of the few bands now that can get away with that, like like Radiohead or something, where they can just kind of disappear into their own little world and it'll still uniquely be Elbow? 
yeah it's it's really interesting the way that um the way that things come together as well like for instance on the last album not the last album on little fictions we did a song called uh white heat mm -hmm. uh, and it ended up with this pretty strong like kind of group like hitting the toms really hard but i did probably five different versions of that song on drums the song mm -hmm. remained pretty much constant through out it didn't really change but the drums kept changing it wasn't right it wasn't right we tried this we tried that um and you know if if you were to like listen to all the versions of that song that that had been tried out um you wouldn't recognize the sound of it until the until the, the released version because it was so different it really was but the, so yeah. the song itself remained the same the vocals and the little da 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 da, da little line that was in there remained the same the drum beat completely changed each time it's pretty fascinating, man. That's it's pretty great, and I think you've 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 kind of managed to. Um, they've always had some pretty hip grooves throughout their back catalogue. You listen to Scattered Black and Whites, or yeah. um, oh, I always get the name. Of the, I can never remember the name of the song. It's the last song or the penultimate song off the second record. Um, but you've now added to that canon as well. Magnificent, she says. Um, weightless. These grooves are like like very elbow grooves that's pretty pretty cool so, so little fictions was like um a kind of vaguely program like funk beat that um craig had come up with um did you say little fictions or did you say magnificent sorry uh, well both of them because uh, i was i was talking about little fictions because it's got it's the it's like this really weird syncopated percussion thing that's going on in the background behind the behind like the billy jean groove yeah that was really yeah uh, that was really fun in fact that's the first one where they were like have you got anything <laughs> we did that we had the first half of that tune dun, dun, God, ba -boom, ba -boom, which which originally was all pro in fact i don't think i i played a couple of bits on that but i didn't play the drum beat on that it was a that was a loop that um, craig found and then at the end the play out bit um of little fictions the kind of second the second part of it um i was like can i try some stuff over this because you've got a lovely little loop here and we found a little thing and, and guy was in the stu in the in the booth with me in the in the um in blueprint where we were recording it we came up with this <laughs> like held symbol at the end and i was i couldn't quite at the time like grab the symbol and carry on playing the groove so he just stood like holding my symbol and on, on every beat four he'd just go and catch it with his fingers <laughs> and it ended up with this play out thing which we played live a lot um and I kind of managed to, <laughs> to trying to play these beats live as often like, oh, how, okay, how is this even possible? Because yeah. layers or, but you know, they've chosen a beat, like a loop from back there, which was a mistake or something like that. Yeah. I catch the symbol with my right hand and then play with intensity and all that uh, was, was uh, really something. But Magnificent, you know, that kind of like, it's a funk groove, man. That's like, yeah, it's a proper like, yeah. It's a proper like James Gadson type, you know, oh, and I'm a funky drummer. I put a couple of little, the little open hi-hats because I played funky drummer so much in my life. Like <laughs> two grooves practicing. It was like, oh yeah, Reeves is on funky drummer again for the sound check. Um, you know, it's that, it's that groove, but we've got these tricky little like cymbal bells and stuff like that. Uh, I was showing it off to some customers today because I was telling them I was going to be talking to you and, and what amazes me about it is that it, it elevates the song without getting louder, without you changing really all that much. You add three bell hits to the existing groove. It's pretty phenomenal. No, oh, nice one. 
Well, I've, I've got to say, Craig was mostly responsible for, that, for a little. Uh, uh, but um, just that that idea of like you can elevate a song with very little. Yeah, well, do you know what? One of my favourite bands as a kid was the Stone Roses. I listened to them, mm. like, right about them, and and um, and that was that. You know, it was like, and especially, <laughs> I was pretty disappointed to find out Fool's Gold um, is uh, 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 James Brown. Uh, in fact, a Bobby um, Bobby Bird loop um, bongos and drums. Um, but I was like, that that's amazing. I want to know how to do that. Um, just put the groove that goes all the way through. Unfortunately, it wasn't. Um, it was. It wasn't ready. It was. Uh, I, I didn't know that till right yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, when I heard, I was like, ah. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it was. It was ripped off the off the Bobby Bird. Can't remember the tune. It was from like from James, JB's Funky People, James, one of James Brown's Funky People records. Right. One of his. What is one of his drummers? Probably Clive Stubblefield. Um, yeah, disappointing. But um, anyway, but at, at the time, I was like, the thing that changes all the way through that tune that keeps it interesting is the is the little like the little conga, like I think it's conga, like a high quinto thing mm-hmm. um, line that goes all the way through, and the, the the tambourine. Sorry, the drums and the tambourine are what uh, the, the, the James Brown bit, and then the percussion stuff is is running. Right, and that's probably why it changes. Yeah, exactly. So, so it doesn't change very much. You know, it doesn't, there's not much extra happens in that tune in terms of a drum part. I, I was also really into The Cure when I was a kid. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, and, and, and um, like the economy of those kind of like 80s and 90s uh, drum beats that they had, all like, you know, 16, 32, sometimes even longer loops, which were played, just absolutely like mesmerizing in the fact that you'd get these little tiny changes over a long period of time that would just pull your ear. Mm-hmm. And as a drummer, like obviously, uh, as a kid, I was just listening to drums. I was hardly listening. <laughs> like, like we, were, you know, it's just like drums, drums, drums. Um, but that was, um, you know, that was real education in like song, not not just song playing, but uh, like coming up with something that was uh, not just bass drum on the one and the three, snare drum on the two and the four. All of those tunes that I mentioned, all of that cure stuff from the middle, that they could. <laughs> could have all have been that but there's an extra thing here there's another sound here wicked amazing lesson those that kind do of. you know who jason mcgair is is he the cure guy now the death cab for a cutie ah, okay there's the, the drummer for, for um, the cure is called jason something like right uh, he's like that yes he is yeah 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 he's super creative with very little yeah it's like it might be a four bar loop and all that changes is like bar three the kick pattern changes and bar four he opens a hi-hat yeah but it's enough to you be like oh wow that's not just he could have phoned that in like he could have easily just phoned it in but he doesn't yeah you know one of the create or you're talking about creative processes with the elbow one one of the creative processes that, that i've seen them use and i know a lot of people other people do as well is they'll find a little bit of magic in 10 minutes of playing and that will be the thing that's interesting. Uh, do you know what? I worked with Tom Beck years ago as well. Oh, right, and, yeah. uh, he, he did the same thing. I, I asked him about the way he made records because the drums that I was playing live with him, he's a drummer. He's a wicked little drummer actually. And um, uh, he would press record, play the drums with a click for like 10 minutes. And then he'd just listen to it all and he'd find one bar 
like one single little bit and he'd, <laughs> that, and he'd be like, that's the song. That one, that 10 minutes that I did all of that, that one bar is it. And it would be, and he was like, I've, I've made whole songs out of mistakes, out of stuff wow. that I accidentally hit this or like, you know, my, drop my stick. And that was the bar that kind of got used. And El- Elbow have done, I mean, that's not, that's not the same thing, but, um, you know, a lot of, in the songwriting process, they use the studio a lot and they'll find the bits of stuff that are beautiful and magical without, you know, you know, interrupting the song. There's a little hint of that on Kindling. Yeah. If you listen to the end of Kindling when they're talking, the you're like, oh, we've got that, we got that good then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and there's like, they'll, they'll just hoover like this little eight bars or something. They were in a writing trip in Scotland uh, and um, I think they hardly did a thing. <laughs> I shouldn't be saying that. Um, and they, um, but they got that and they were like, let's have, I think they did a lot actually. Um, but um, one of them was like, part um, had the guitar player part had dropped a massive bag of kindling onto the, onto the floor and it had hit in time. And they were like, Oh, that's a good sound. Dun, dun, dun. Is that what that is? A massive bag of wood. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's really hip. Um, so like, they were obviously pretty established when you joined them. Was that a tough thing for you to sort of come into? Um, yes, although I had done that stuff before, kind of step into someone else's shoes and try to be them to a certain extent. When I when I first joined Bat for Lashes, it was uh, they were halfway through a tour, and wow. they had the unique voice of Chris Fatalero, um, who's may, I mean, if you haven't heard of him, check him out. He's an amazing drummer. Right. Like, I think he went off to play with Brian Eno. After he's he's a wow, okay, yeah. force. He's a and you're not not just a drummer. He's all sorts. Um, and the way he put that gig together was uniquely him. Um, and I had to I had to find a way of playing it and become him for a little <laughs> bit before it became me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, and I, a few other things I had done it before, uh, but um, yeah, I mean, obviously with a band as established as Elbow, that there's. I, I won't mention names, but um, I have heard drummers being replaced before and completely changing for the worse, in my opinion, the sound and the feeling of the band by, by just being different, by just being a different person. And obviously, you change the drums in a record and it changes a lot of the sound of it. It's like changing the singer, I think. Um, or So when, when I first joined, it was like, I beat you up, beat you up. All, apart from the new stuff, you know, all the old stuff, I I, I listened. I had multi tracks all of the uh, of all of the live gigs, and um, Danny Evans, the sound engineer, sent me all the stuff, so I had all the stems, so I could properly listen to things and properly like work out what it was, how to play it. And he was playing in a different way to me. He was playing very much on the back foot, was hitting stuff hard, very simple, but everything was loops. Most things were loops. Um, and Jap's blinding, man. He's an amazing drummer. Yeah, he's, it's um, you know what? Yeah, if, it's just part of that band, isn't it? It's not going to be anything else. You know, pro- properly like a pr- properly incredible sounding drummer. Really good, mm-hmm. really good. In like interesting, comes up with wild ideas. Great time, great feel, great sound. All the stuff that you want in a band. And and you know to to kind of step into that and change it would have been a terrible idea. I remember a guy saying. I was like, because I'd been doing his, I'd done his solo album and I'd done his, mm-hmm. I've been with him for ages. Um, and we started to become friends at that time. And um, uh, he, I was like, what do you think? How should I, how should I do this? And he said, 
do the old stuff exactly like Jup and do the new stuff like you and us and we'll, we'll you know we'll figure out the board. and so when when you're playing songs as established as like one day or grounds for divorce or any of that stuff i've seldom seen kid like um, mirrorball as well mm-hmm. uh, you know those, those those songs it's not for you to change them they're already there they're already established so i had to play the right volume the right feeling behind the beat a little bit i tuned my drums in a certain way you know i worked hard on that i worked for yeah. a lot so, i mean you can hear it you can hear it like um and the other thing I think that people forget about is that there's 20 years of a fan base don't really want to change it. Of course they don't. I remember when the Stone Roses changed their drummer and it was just like, why? What's, what's you know, it's, I didn't like was it. That, was that band called The Seahorses? Sorry. No, I'm, no, I'm joking. I'm joking. Cause... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I missed the joke. Yes, very good. No, um, uh, it was, um, you know, when, uh, um, when Rennie left, it was just like, like you know the guy they got in was a session guy I, thought, I don't know who he was um but it sounded different and that was you know that what you realize is that it's like you know like zeppelin not being able to replace or, or saying for a long time that they weren't going to replace john bonham and then they the only person they replaced him with was Jason bonham, yeah. the next bonham it was the only choice wasn't it yeah of course it was you know the yeah. guy literally seen and know and knew I mean, if, if you're going to put anybody on Ringo's chair, it's probably going to be Zach. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's probably... I mean, there'll be there'll be guys out there that can do it, but it's, there's so much of the context that's missing. You know, so much of the personality of him as a person that would be missing, that Jason would be the only person to really know. Well, it's also so much more than the music, isn't it? Like, mm-hmm. you know, I think The Beatles is a really good example of that because... Um, and in fact, the Who is a really good example of that. Yeah, yeah. Zach's lucky. You know, like lo- losing that losing that person in a room as as big as losing the, the musical voice. You know, that per- I, I always think that once you get to a certain point in your, in fact, probably not. I was going to say that you know you got to have lived a little bit to have your to have your voice. But like, how old was Tony Williams when he was playing with uh, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, what was that album? Da, 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 with four on anyway. Uh, seven steps to heaven and all that. Yeah, nah, you know, it's just like listen, he's like seventeen or something, yeah. unbelievably young. So obviously not. And and Bonham the same young. Um what was uh, Ringo when he joined? He was the oldest one at like twenty two or something. Yeah, something crazy. Yeah. Uh, you know, at the age thing. But but you know, once once you're in that kind of like scene and things, you, you have you, you there's so much about what you are as a person. And uh, um, how you play your instrument, and what all your choices have been up until that up until that specific moment that will lead you to be to those records then to sound a certain way. Um, replace that. So I think replacing a drummer's it's massive. It's really big. It's like well, just, yeah, I still think that's um, not quite the same, but pretty massive. Yeah, I mean, you look at the song "Rock and Roll," and you look at the song "Keep a Knocking." It's the same. <laughs> yeah, but it's also uniquely Bonham, isn't it? Because it's, and it's not Errol Palmer. It's not going to swing the same way, man. And it's, Although you it know, is. Little Richard didn't have two by 12 screaming at him and, you know, all that. So it's all, it's all it, of it. You could call it progress. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you could call it progress. You could call it progress. Um, where are we? Where are we? Um Oh, so I, I skipped a question, but I'm going to ask it. Um, when I, I was talking about like how you accommodate artist voices, yeah. and then I wanted to ask, how do you take that to the stage if you've played with them live? 
because I think they're personally I think they are and they probably should be separate processes yeah I suppose I suppose it is I mean the in the studio it it depends what you're doing this there's, there's a lot of times you'll get onto a studio and it'll be like here's what you're playing the session is for a mu four hours long session mm. in and out read the music listen to the music do the demo um add a couple of things that are you add a couple of things that, that, that that's the reason that they called you as a as a drummer or a musician in there you have a voice so they called you in for that reason um that's it and then you're gone whereas there's sometimes working with you know over a longer period like especially with elbow where you know I, i'll sit I've, i i usually get paid by the hour <laughs> <laughs> sitting at the back of a studio not doing anything for like two or three days sometimes is quite weird for me or, or was quite weird for me uh, when i first started working with elbow it was just you know their creative process is like is like let's just see what happens you know we have songs let's take this bit let's use the studio let's do that let's do this won't need you for a little bit go and get a cup of tea you know we all have one um <laughs> and um but then you know then then working on it then working on the live stuff. The live stuff is that the, the difference, I suppose, is the song is done. You know exactly what you're supposed to be doing. Recreating the record in whatever way the artist has the vision to, whether it's just playing the songs as you know by rote, exactly as they are on the record, or, or whether it's um, something a bit more like have have this stage show in mind. I went to saw Michael Kiwanuka last night. Um, oh wow! Um, and it was like it was a show. It wasn't a show like musical theatre show. It was a show. Like that, Michael's an amazing musician, wonderful songwriter, and they just kind of seamlessly wound their set together. So it felt like I was in one, you know, felt like I was watching one long kind of artistic performance. So, and, and his records are kind of like that, but not like that. So um, there was a, probably, a, I can imagine, a lot of time spent in the rehearsal room just joining things together and making sure that the set flowed in a, in a certain way and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and the preparation for the musicians probably had to be pretty pretty stellar um, on that. Yeah. Also, you know, like um, with Elbow, I'm going to say specifically, like you know, there's like nine now nine albums to play on stage, and each every single song has a different drum sound. <laughs> how, how do you deal with that? Yeah, you know, I mean, you could go down drums. all all kinds of rabbit holes, couldn't you? Electronics, like yeah. that's what we did with Bat for Lashes, you know. Mm. Uh, had the most the smallest acoustic kits up had snare drum floor tom bass drum hi-hats and simple that was it everything else had like three pads in front of me <laughs> um triggers double triggers on everything apart from bass drum through a left foot pedal um and uh, a laptop where ableton was like changing the sounds through you know verses to choruses like this sound was different here sometimes beat to beat had one you know like and each each trigger was like you know that one then that one then that one written in ableton um you know, bonkers that was chris Battalera's idea thanks chris really hard <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah like you know that was that approach but with elbow this i don't play any electronics in there we you know like how about this let's put a tea towel over the floor tom for this this snare drum for that that snare drum's off this tambourine for that song, this tambourine for that song, this shaker for this one, this shaker for another one. Danny Evans, the, the sound engineer out the front, like manipulating the sound so that it's, it's true to the spirit and the record. Um, you know, and so you go into rehearsal to do a new song 
and for, at the beginning, obviously, they were all new. And Danny was coming up to me and like, can you not rim shot the snare drum? It just, uh-huh. just makes it all thin and weedy sounding. Can you tune it lower? A lot more dampening on that. Uh, we had the last one at um, 150 hertz. Can you tune it down? Yours is at 165. <laughs> you know, like super nerdy stuff. Yeah. So there's like it, it, each each instrument and each thing on each song is like to be, you know, worked on and manipulated so that it sounds right, so that it sounds like the audience the, want it to sound. It's vibey and it's being played uh, and it's not prescriptive, but it's right. So, Wow, man, that's like mental, mate. <laughs> it's, yeah, there's like so many things off of that. Like, who even teaches kids now that that's a thing that they're going to have to deal with? Oh uh, yeah, you just kind of like you know, at some point, someone will ask you to do it differently, and that's how you learn, right? Well, totally. But it's like it's 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 the removal of the ego. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's understanding that you're there as a as a a vehicle. Yeah, you yeah. Know, you're a conduit to the music and it's an interesting it's that's an interesting like approach i've got these uh, i'm going to show you hang on okay um, a friend of mine pete, pete jobson actually who plays with um uh i played with i am clute and was doing oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah. i met his um uh we, we met guy solo record and he's become a mate i did just did his record in, in here um and um he was like every time he came along he brought me a present it was mm-hmm. one and he brought me this like those Zildjian spiral stacker things. Oh, yeah, 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 totally. I can see Alex has got um, a two over his right shoulder. He has um, some like, crazy Zildjian set up. He goes, uh, yeah, I saw this and I thought it would be. Um, <laughs> he, bought, he bought me the Oblique Strategies. Wait, it was his own. Is that in Mirror Image? Yeah, yeah, I can see it. I don't know what it is. Uh, okay, so the Oblique Strategies, Ryan Eno's uh, producer cards. It's Ryan Eno and Peter Schmidt, who were working together, I think, on a Bowie record. Wow, seventies, and um, and they made they were like, what we need sometimes is like a random thought to change the mindset of what's going on. We're stuck in a rut here. Something's happening, and so what I started doing with these things is is like every day, if I was working in an artistic way rather than just like I needed to get something done, it's mm-hmm. like let's make something instead. Um, I'd pick I'd pick a I'm going to pick one at random. Pick okay. So guys, if you're if you're listening to this, imagine a box of cards like cards from uh, cards of humanity, but less <laughs> awful. <laughs> so what what have we got? So the one picked at random says, "Faced with a choice, do both." <laughs> in relevance to what you were saying, as like in terms of like reduce, you know, like backing off your ego. Egos, I think, is important in music. I'm, uh, so so let's mm-hmm. agreed. Yeah, and I think, you know, ego is often what leads to artistic um, uniqueness and merit and those kind of things. It's often about self and self-exploit and, and, and um, uh, um, the expression of self and wanting to be, that's kind of, that kind of is ego, isn't it? You know, someone's... Oh, well, we, none of us would be musicians without it. Yeah, exactly. You know, but, but you know, as, as a, what is essentially a sideman, which is kind of what my job is, I'm not, I'm not the person who comes up with the, the original idea often. Um, but and I'm there to serve. I'm there to serve. Mm-hmm. What it is whether it's like something that it does need to be chopsy and like you know, I'm, if I'm in a club, if I'm in Ronnie Scott's, you know, actually playing a players players gig, and I can just like do a thing, whatever I want, then fine. It kind of you know you're in the you're in the moment. But if you're playing and the song is this and it has to be that and everyone's expecting that in a band specifically, then um, you do have to kind of like back off it a little bit. So so the uh, 
the four that I've got up and from the last few days of me, no, I didn't want to put any of them away. The first one that came out was question the heroic approach, <laughs> which made me think of like, you know, when I go out and I, and I want to put a few extra fills in that aren't actually necessary, <laughs> that, that is just like, you know, you've got to just think about whether everyone else wants what you're doing. <laughs> the heroic approach. Beautiful. But then literally right next to it, I've also, the next one that came out the next day was don't be frightened to discover your talents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where, where do you land in between that? How is that possible to reconcile those two things? I have no idea. Philosophy, no idea. Music, man, it's it's like you don't. I mean, but once you've opened the book, it's impossible to uh, it's impossible to close. It's a Pandora's box of philosophical uh, philosophical thought. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, principally, it's absolutely amazing. Like the whole idea is tremendous to me. I think, though, I'm like you. I would I would have like five and and be like. Well, now, now I've got a problem deciding which one to use. And yeah, yeah. The rut is not the right, and it's picking a bloody card. <clears throat> pretty yeah. amazing. Is it, I mean, they're only designed to kind of like change someone's, you know, when, you, when you're in a moment, everyone's arguing. Or like, it's just a little poke. Yeah, which happens in a studio. Um, in Snap Studios around the corner from me, they've got this lovely Neve desk and a, and a, like a nice you know, nice sounding room, beautiful selection of mics. And then they've got on the, um, <laughs> on the top of the Neve, They've got this knob, and, right. and it's um, it says it's like it's from zero to eleven, and it's called the blame shifter. This <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Well, we're yeah. a drum store, so it would be kind of remiss of me to do an interview like this and not talk about gear. So, um, you seem like a big sonar guy. Yeah, I love I love their drums. That's what I play too. I play the same kit as you. I play the vintage series. It's a wonderful kit, isn't it? Sensational. Oh, also, Sensational. First tile as anything. In fact, they just oh. sent they just sent me this. Well, maybe I can. Are you going to use the video for this? Yeah, yeah, we will use the video. Yeah. For those who are on who are on um, analog, who are on uh, <laughs> they sent me the twenty inch. Um, oh, the vintage and 20, 12, 14. I've got loads of these kits now. <laughs> they are so good. That's the twenty and twelve. Hang on, twelve. 14 and I've got an 18 in the studio at the moment um, and uh, I put an old really old Ludwig 60s Ludwig head that I had off one of my old kits um, on it and it sounds one it sounds really something it's the 20 I play and yeah. I'm yeah, I, I, I keep like I keep thinking I want new drums right and then and I'll play something and then I'll play my son and I'm like nope yeah nope there's nothing comes close to it yet. I haven't found a kit that rivals the tone yet. Yeah, they're pretty special, and uh, yeah. also they're pretty they're really versatile. Like, I can make it sound old, and I can make it sound like brand spanking modern mm. as well. Uh, mm. but it retains a bit. I think retains a bit of character. It's like, but on this kit, I put on these on the bass drum. I put on like old sounding heads, so it goes boom boom. You know, it's got a bit of jazz vibe to it, funk and jazz vibe to this specific one. Um, but on the toms, I've got some response to heads, the aquarium ones, which mm -hmm. are like double thickness heads. I think they think they're really they're really special actually, um, and it gives it a real mod, you know, like damp. Um, <clears throat> on my kit that's in my in my car right now is the, another Sony vintage one. I've got like um, uh, the texture coated thin heads, and I've got it tuned a bit more like boing boing. Yeah. 
say I've got two 12 inch toms, one for here and one for the rest of it. Just like different drums, completely different. Yeah, there's like this middle and the, and the tone that I can't find in any other wood apart from beach. It's like, it, you know, maple's a bit brighter. You can hear the high end and, and birch is a bit darker, but the, there's this warmth and openness in the, in the beach. It's just like, fucking hell. Right. And the snare, um, snare those those snare drums. Mm-hmm. One there. <laughs> and that, that's an old twenties single Slingle and Radio King. That one on Acrolyte. That one is a that one's the Sona vintage series. Yeah. And I've got a highlight there, the son of my hand. Okay, I, I remember watching one of your shootout videos. Oh the, what, one. Yeah, and one of them's like one of the ascent steel things. Oh yeah, that's um, incredible. That thing. What? It? Yeah, no. Just I, like this shouldn't be this good. Yeah, I, I was really messing around with it. I did a just before I did that um, that snare drum video. This was right in the middle of lockdown. I think I was I was like, you know, I've lost fifty percent of my work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I started doing stuff like I was doing loads of studio stuff. It was you know fine, good for that. But you know, I didn't I didn't go on tour. Have to sit in a tour bus. I have to. Like it's a bad thing. Yeah, you know, I didn't have to. I didn't have to sit around in a tour <laughs> whinging about <laughs> drinking too much beer and staying up late playing rock <laughs> and roll gigs. Oh, what a life, eh? Um, no, so I, I wasn't away. So I, I'd spend my time like changing snare drum heads, <laughs> like really stuff that my wife was not interested in. Uh, and I, t- I did like a tech two days where I got all my snare drums and I just changed the heads and tried to find the right one for each for each drum tuned it in a certain way, try to find this little sweet spot, which I, I you know, you kind of know your snare drums, but I got to know them better than ever. Mm. Uh, and that snare drum, that the Sonar Ascent, I think I ended up putting a, a dot, uh, um, power dot, a uh, texture coated with power dot on it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, tuning it low. Did I, tune? I think I tuned it low. So it had a bit of bite to it. Metal snare drums, deep metal snare drums tuned low with a bit of damping on, like sound great recorded. Spot off. Mm. Sound great recorded. That one sounded Steel, steel snare drum. Really. Oh, just all day long. Um, do you? Obviously, you do because you have some. But do you really buy into the vintage drum thing? And I don't mean sort of vintage. I mean old drums. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. I'm, I've got loads of old stuff because each one has got its own character and vibe. Mm. Everything sounds different. Um, uh, so I don't think there's anything that sounds as, in, as good to me. Or is it? It's at home. Um, it's my, I've got a 1920s um, nickel over brass uh, Ludwig uh, Universal the wow. model, which is basically it's the same shell as the old Black Beauty, which everyone wants, but it's about, about one-tenth the price. Um, and a hundred years old. hundred, literally a hundred years old. I remember I, I bought these in the US in, um, in lockdown. I bought the Acrolyte. So I was just showing you, which I hadn't got. I've got a couple of 400s, old Ludwig 400s from the the deep one, and I've got the shallow one. Um, and I really like those, but the Acrolyte was 150 quid from America. I was just like, I can't not get this from um, this. And I, I, I haven't, but I, that was just because it was from the same store as the one I'd been looking for this nickel over brass snare drum for ages and ages, and I hadn't found one in the UK. So I started looking in the US, and um, it came when it came through, I just unpackaged it and paid it. And I was like, this is the sound of it doesn't sound like anything else yeah uh, and it doesn't record it doesn't not write for everything i if i if i could i'd use it for almost everything that <laughs> zone of vintage would cover most of my sessions i think um 
but yeah, it's, it's got a certain thing to it that I haven't heard any other drum modern old ever have. It's just wonderful. So, so that, that's the kind of thing I'm after in vintage drums that and like, you know, I've got the old Salvation Army marching drum, which just mm. half skin heads just sounds like it sounds never going to sound. Do you think it's the, these drums have that thing because of things like their age? I know was it the guy that used to build drums for Yamaha, the guy called Haggy, used to say that it takes about 25 years for a kit to mature. Wow, really? Mm, I remember reading that somewhere. So do you think that's a thing, like that drum's had 100 years of fucking shit and grime and, and sweat and, and stick head stuff oh, in it, you know? That's why, you know, a lot of bass players don't want to change the strings. Mm-hmm. Big crap all over you know, yeah. a certain way. And as soon as you put new strings on it, it's the whole the tone of everything changes for them. Um, that's why I know a lot of bass players use flat wound strings to kind of give the duller, older kind of sound. Um, mm. But yeah, dr- I think drums are the same thing. I mean, I- I'd be really interested to hear these Sona Vintage kits in 25 years. Because yeah. uh, who knows? They- they'll be the classic kits of that time. They're expensive. They're beautifully made. Like, I mean, expensive, like, expensively made they're you know no expense spared kind of thing top range stuff um and uh, i think they'll last forever i think they'll sound incredible yeah agreed yeah. but the, the fascinating thing about all this when i was at college studying one of the lecturers was like you realize that the guys that we all look up to you 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 know as a drummer you're tony williams you're art blakey and all these guys they were using the best gear they could get their hands on they weren't using snare drums that were 30 years old, obviously because they weren't around but and they didn't have availability, but they wanted it to be super hip and super new. Yeah, totally. It's yeah. a really uh, weird thing, the obsession with vintage gear. But maybe, I mean, the drum kit wasn't that old that, that then, was it? You know, it hadn't. No, no. Uh, the, even, the, even the setup of itself, what was that? Gene Krupa was probably one of the first guys to, to like popularise that kind of, you know, that kind mm. of... Uh, Probably. Yeah, yeah. Maybe forties. Yeah, exactly. You know, like you know, it was happening, but you know, the hi hat had only just been invented, so you know, there weren't mm. that there wasn't that much of that around that was forty years old. So perhaps in the fifties and sixties, you know, looking back, it was just stuff that wasn't made properly. Like the hardware of those of those kits was probably awful. You know, mm. like see guys now using like modern hardware, old drums. I think that's a really interesting way of going because you don't get stuff falling off, falling over. Well, I had a, a 400 from the 70s. Oh, yeah. And the throw-off wouldn't hold the wires in place. Right. And it was before Ludwig brought out the, the sort of replacement throw-off. So that the PA? Like, yeah, like, th- this drum's unusable because, like, three tunes into a wedding, I've got a timbali instead of a snare drum. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> but then... Symbol's the same thing. So, so you know, like, the, if you buy... You know, you can kind of date, like, old Zildjian symbols. Mm-hmm. Logo, and yeah. then logo which is like 70s and then there's the stuff slightly before and then the stamp mm-hmm. supposed to tell you exactly when it was made um you know those symbols gradually got a little bit thicker because drummers were starting to hit harder uh, up until the point where like like now drummers don't necessarily have to really smash drums as hard because pas have got great monitoring's got great um you know you don't necessarily have to whack stuff but for a little bit like you've got those Zildjian projection crashes or like <laughs> thick stage symbols, which were just made you know, solely to get over the guitar player's noise. <laughs> but, you know, that you would, there was no competing. You just had to like have big sticks and bring your arms up in the air and hit the drums as hard as you possibly could. So drums had to be made and cymbals had to be made so that they weren't just going to die under the pressure of that. Yeah. So, so uh, as, a, as someone who records then with cymbals like that, what are you looking for? 
uh, well, I think, do you know, I think my tastes keep changing all the time. Um, I, I've started to go for slightly older, slightly brighter symbols. So right. uh, I, my favorite set at the moment, and I mean at the moment, like this last couple of months, um, is I, I found an, a 60s set of Avidis 14-inch uh, hi-hats, mm. um, an old 18-inch crash and uh, a 20-inch crash ride, all Zildjian, all old. There's just like that's what's floating my boat right now. They're all quite bright. They're quite thin, but they haven't got that K darkness. They haven't got the constant Constantinople kind of like oh. thing. Um, but to be honest, I change it constantly. And, <laughs> and like, yeah, you know, I've got loads of symbols. I just kept collecting stuff. I've got a bag of symbols called which has got a sign on it says "Broken Stuff," and it's, <laughs> it's, it's stuff that I found in rehearsal rooms, and I've been like can I give you a tenner? And then I'd be like, yeah, fine. Yeah, just take it. It's a bag of shit. And, um, wow. you know, a symbol with like a bit missing or like a crack down there that just sounds mad. Yeah. Uh, certain things I love. Like yeah, a couple of days ago, I was using a, um, my set of hi-hats was a broken 16-inch um, minor crash with a chain in it that someone <laughs> literally put, like stapled in there somehow. And then an upside down china that I found in a, in a, it's completely broken and it just sounded amazing for them. Holy shit. I mean, for most stuff, it would have sounded like a bag of shit. <laughs> but for that tune, I remember. I mean, that's the, that's the lesson in it. There's, yeah. there's, a, there's a sound in everything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's an old vase up here. Hang on. I've seen this lately on your Instagram. Yeah, yeah. I, I found the <clears throat> shop. Hey, do you know what? I'm, I advise to young drummers go to a charity shop and hit stuff. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes you like, that there's an old cow drum here as well which is like an old I don't know some kind of like con metal container with that someone's put calfskin heads on and, and lapped it and it sounds bonkers and amazing I've, and I've used it for all sorts of stuff um, wicked okay we'll round it out with a really sort of um, game show question but um, your recording career what three things have you learned that's influenced you more than anything else oh my god I wish you prepared me for this one sorry <laughs> <laughs> then I wouldn't have the, the look in your eyes of like oh, fair enough <laughs> yeah, yeah. three things so can you repeat the question so what three things over your recording career have you learned that's influenced you the most um, I think hearing yourself back recorded is the biggest thing of all so iPhone recording because or proper recording or anything like that, because as soon as you, you know, as soon as you hear your voice, for instance, your spoken voice on tape for the first time in your life, you're like, do I, do I really sound like that? <laughs> you know, because inside your own, the way the acoustics work in your, in your head, um, because you're in, when you're speaking, because you're in your head, you sound much bassier than you actually are. Uh, mm. You're getting the resonance of that. And then suddenly you hear it and everything sounds like a speaker. <laughs> you know, like, it's completely different. And, um, I think it's the same with drums. Like suddenly you realize that uh, certainly when you're young, the hi-hat's too loud, the crash cymbal's too loud, whatever you're hitting. that If you're right-handed and you're leading with your right hand, that hand is dominating, and it's, but you're relying on it to keep time. Yeah. Um, kind of the bass drum. Snare drum sounds woolly or it sounds indistinct to all those kind of things. But mainly your time sounds bad. Yeah. You know, like I, I think I'm probably playing beats that I was still like, playing beats that I was in year two of my drumming <laughs> when I first started drumming, but just now they sound good. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
Uh, another thing, I, I, I saw um, Matt Chamberlain on. I was I was stalking Matt Chamberlain for a little bit because I love his playing. I think, I think he's just one. I think he's the best. I think he's the best drummer in the world. I'm going to say that. I think he's the best drummer in the world because he I done. Mean, he had. He's just incredible. He has a voice. He has chops. He has one of the best sounds. But but what, it's, what I learned from him is. The best drummers, especially record, recorded drummers, will sound like a record immediately. They sit down behind the kit with their sound, the way they hit the drums, their tuning of their kit, and it sounds like a finished record. That's, that's like, and getting to that point is decades, well, certainly a long time, you know, especially if you're a session player of, of whatever kind, because um, it, it, you've got to, you get asked to do so many different types of things, different styles, different sounds, different approaches. Can you make it sound a bit more like, and someone will reference a record that you've hopefully heard. <laughs> it's just, you know, and you're constantly being challenged in the studio, but back in the can, some, you know, you're playing. And that's great. Um, that second verse, um, just can you just push it into the chorus a little bit more? And that second beat you're playing, I like the first beat that you played on the couple of takes ago, but can you not, can you play that one, but on the ride cymbal? And then on the play out, um, can we just have a few more fills and can you just kind of go for it a bit more? Oh, and yeah, and it stops on the, it stops. okay, ready? Space bar. You know, that, so that's all, like as a session guy, you're on the other side of the glass of someone paying a thousand quid a day for a studio. And if, if you haven't written this down or you haven't got an amazing memory, you're kind of screwed, you know, and especially if you're playing live with a band. That's, that's the stuff, like little things, producers, producer questions. I didn't want know that fill. No, you, you didn't listen to me. Can you do that feel like you did it a couple of takes ago? Do you remember? And if you weren't listening to yourself, you weren't in the moment, you don't remember. Can you play it back to me? Oh, yeah, that feel. Okay, go. You know, like, there's your, there's your, uh, there's your day. Wow. Thinking, on your, thinking quickly and thinking on your feet and, and giving, the people, giving the person what they want and what they need is, is like moment to moment. And no one is giving you any more anyway, and, um, unless you're like... Um, Ralph Sums or or um, Neil Wilkinson or Thomas, I know those guys will do like big band charts and they'll get like you know orchestra sessions and stuff like that, film sessions, massive ones, and those kinds of things. I don't really do like reading gigs like that because I can't read well nearly well enough to do that kind of stuff where they're just like dots go. Um, most of the time, the sessions that I do, uh, it will be you know someone might have like played you the demo like five minutes before. And that's the time you've heard the song, and you like sitting there writing notes or remembering it, whichever way, you, whichever way you roadmap a song, um, and um, uh, and then you're in. Like, okay, uh, let's get a sound. Snedham sounds good. Yeah, Tom sounds good. All right, one, two. <laughs> so you know, like that. That's the thinking on your feet, thinking quickly. Um, wow, that doesn't really answer your question. I can't remember. I've gone off on one. So. No, it, it, I mean, it's like, yeah, it's, there's a whole bunch of stuff wrapped up in that, but it's a skill set that you have to learn. Yeah. That I think your career will have taught you. i got another one, third one. Okay. Answer your question, um, uh, which I think is good advice to young, to like someone starting out young players, which is um, when you practice, practice with meaning. Um, if you just, uh, mm. no, you know, no reason there is merit it to a little bit of that but um when when what you practice is what you play on a gig so if you're practicing solos all the time and you get to a gig and your time and your timing's sloppy it's because you haven't been practicing your time mm. you're, you know like 
whatever music type of music that you're playing, if you're playing blast beats, you need to be in time. You need to be, you know, sound good. If you're just playing blast beats, but you're doing fills all over the place, people are like, what's he doing? <laughs> but, but, so practice what you're going to play and practice with meaning. Don't practice in front of, what? Well, don't always practice in front of the telly. Don't practice in front of Instagram, doom scrolling while you're practicing your left hand. <laughs> you know, like practice. With me. Beautiful. Well, what's next, man, for you? Uh, well, it's different every day. To, um, next week, I'm doing playing at Buckingham Palace. Oh, wow, shit. <laughs> yeah, we're doing a, we're doing a, uh, uh, with Elbow. Uh, so we're doing the, the, the Buckingham Palace concert for the Queen's Jubilee. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the night before, I've got a, a cons. Uh, a, a Red Rooster Festival in Suffolk or not? Like no, no. C6 Steve is headlining, and I'm playing with a guy called Marcus Bonfanti, who I've known for a lot, loved for a long time. He's a he's a good friend and a great, great musician. Um, I've got a set with him at that festival on the Friday, um, and then the week after that, we're going into rehearsals with Elbow. We've got some festivals over the summer, starting with. Um, uh, couple of ones at Hampton Court Palace and then we've got Glastonbury we're playing Pyramid Stage on the Sunday oh, amazing. yeah it's, uh, one of the headline slots it's just the best place to play ever <laughs> it really is it's really something um, and I've got lo- just loads of studio things good well man <clears throat> I really appreciate you taking an hour to talk all things drums man thank you so much I really appreciate it it was a great chat So yeah, thanks for inviting me on really appreciate it no worries. If you're ever in Glasgow or Leeds, we have two branches, so come in and say hi and we'll, we'll talk. Yeah, I'd love to mm. see you and see the shop. Yeah, yeah. Talk more shit and drink coffee. and Wonderful. Love it. Know that. But um, take care, man. I hope the gigs and all that go well. And nice no doubt we'll see you down the road. Yeah, thanks so much. Take care, man. See ya. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Drummers Only Podcast. Please leave us a review and make sure you subscribe. If you need any more information about us or any gear mentioned, head on over to drummersonly.co.uk and make sure you follow us on all of our social channels at drummersonlyuk. Thanks for listening. Peace.